One of the things that I uh, have talked about several times in Voyager is how I feel the show is actually hampered by the fact that there has to be a threat of the week. There have been at least three or four episodes where there's this really strong, awesome, character-driven plot, and then the threat of the week, which literally just interferes with the rest of it. Probably my favorite example of that right off the top of my head uh, would be Swarm from, I believe, season three, where there's this wonderful, engaging, interesting Doctor plot, and then the bad guy of the week who are disinteresting and boring. There's plenty of episodes like that, and it's not just limited to Star Trek. This is a fairly common feature of television in general, uh, unfortunately. And I'm reminded, as I re watching this episode, one of the reasons why I like Babylon 5, because they don't really feel there's anything wrong with doing an episode that is basically just a character study. This episode helps flesh out Jakar a little, helps flesh out Londo a lot, helps flesh out the Centauri as a people, and eh, gives a little bit of insight into Veer and uh, Ivanova and a little bit of insight into Garibaldi. And that's really it. I mean, yes, there is a threat in this episode, but it's not really. It's mostly there as a consequence of characters bouncing off each other. Not so much as, oh my god, the aliens from Timbuktu are attacking today. Quick, whip up a Tectobabble solution. Okay, they're gone. Back to the character stuff. No, it's all focused on the character stuff, and I like that. Uh, by the way, I know a lot of people have been asking about the coat. I guess you guys haven't seen the streams where I where I talked about it uh, when I first got it. This is a very nice coat I got for $5 at Goodwill in the middle of the summer. This was uh, last year. And it's awesome. Any questions? Uh, I forget what brand it is. I'd have to actually pull it on for a sec to see. Uh, hang on, hang on. Since you guys are so curious. Uh, okay, what is this thing? Uh, right, that's it. This is a London Fog. I knew I, I, knew I knew the the term. It's still got the inside lining and everything. It's in great condition. Funny, huh? Moving along, back to Babylon 5. So, I, I was going for, like, the uniform look. I always like to have a different uniform for each show I do, so. Um, and buying actual uh, cosplay uniforms for the Babylon 5 outfits is basically impossible. I've never found anyone ever who actually sells them, just people, individuals, who actually make their own. Bit of a shame. Moving on, I like that early on uh, we see Jakar having an interest in the human dancers. It's a subtle touch, really. He just kind of occasionally, like, in the middle, he's like, oh, I hate malaria, I hate malaria. And he just, he, and he just keeps glancing back at them. Uh, as I mentioned, that will be kind of a recurring thing for him. I also think it's interesting... Even at the very beginning of this episode, you get the impression that Londo is not simply lusting after this woman, that he has a genuine affection for her, that he actually feels something for her. And throughout the course of the episode, you absolutely get that impression. Not just because he goes through the puppy love situation. I mean, anyone, anyone can go through puppy love. But after she has betrayed him, after she has wounded him, after he has to go and stop her from, from ruining everything, he still cares about her. He still doesn't want her to get hurt. He is still willing to, to be with her despite it all. He actually still forgives her as well. That says something about uh, the level of caring and concern involved, especially for someone as old as he. Because, I mean, you know, without wishing to say too much, uh, once you get to a certain age, you kind of get used to romance going bad. And, yeah... Um, there's a wonderful quote that Londo will actually say later on. I forget how it goes exactly, but it's something along the lines of, love is for the young. 
Now, uh, this is the first of many of Jakar's assistants. Uh, I think we're going to have a total of four over the course of the series, something like that, three or four. Uh, the reason why is because the makeup and prosthetics that are necessary to make them look like Narn were bothersome and troublesome to wear on a regular basis, so they either had to stop for medical reasons or bowed out because it was simply irritating their skin and bothering them too much. <laughs> An unfortunate reality of working with you know, physical effects like that uh, when you actually have a person in makeup and in a suit. Uh, this is actually similar to something that happened over on Farscape. Uh, one of the actresses involved, I don't want to say anything for fear of spoilers of Farscape, uh, but one of the actresses involved actually had to basically quit the show because it was just really getting to her skin wearing the makeup on a regular basis. So, anyways, um, once again in this episode we see that Londo isn't, re he just doesn't care that much about official public matters of, of state. Not really. I mean, to some extent there's probably still some pride, some going through the motions there, as, you know, as a centauri. But we see in two different ways that he's just, he, at this point, he doesn't really care about it. This is, again, not the first time they've emphasized this. Uh, first of all, his willingness to, uh, to it, he, he talks about his title, and I hate it when you call me that, you know, the, the ambassador title. And yet, as we know, and we learn through this episode and other episodes, the Centauri culture is all about titles, all about appearances, all about masks. We'll talk a little bit more in a moment. And so... Anyone who has the title of ambassador of the Centauri should be like, yes, that is all that I am, and it is everything that I am. And yet he does not actually enjoy being reminded of that mask by her. She herself points out the Centauri mindset when he, when he rebuffs her on it. Second point is, of course, the fact that he is willing to put Veer in charge of what is ultimately a fairly important negotiation. Basically because he's just like, eh, I, I have something more important on my mind. Now, you could be like, oh, he's just a horn dog, but I don't think that's true. It's actually a very interesting insight into his character, I think, because it's not so much that he's a horn dog, although that is probably involved. It's that after all he's gone through, he knows his career is dead end. He knows the Republic is dead end. He knows that they are the last dying gasps of what was once an empire, and it doesn't really matter. It, you know, what, what, what was once considered something that would be relevant and important is inconsequential now. Because it does, it's not going to change anything. They're either going to be eventually finally crushed, or they're just going to keep lumbering on like they always have. What's the difference? What's the point? This woman actually matters to me, will actually change my life in a way that will be relevant. Ergo, Adira was more important to him than the Republic. You see that? Because it's, it's a nice fine shading. It's not just selfishness. It's not just puppy love. It's not just lust. It's a degree of his character shining through, once again, his resignation to the nature of the Republic at this point. Um, I also like his general willingness to be honest with Adira. I feel like he's probably very... This is some of the most honest we see of Londo being uh, throughout the show, actually. Although, again, I don't want to say too much about the future. Um, and he just, he just really drops the mask around her, which, of course, brings me to the whole masks thing. I don't really, unfortunately, I don't have much to say. I feel like the, the Centauri mindset is very simple. It's a fascinating culture. The idea being that it matters how you appear, what you present yourself as, how other people perceive you. Now, of course, you'd be like, well, that's how human culture is, all human cultures. Well, no, taken to an extreme. Who you really are does not matter culturally in the Centauri. Who you really are, that's who you show to the people you really trust 
or no one, as the case may be. But otherwise, you are constantly on appearances, you've constantly got the mask on, or masks, as the case may be, and you constantly are striving to appear to be whatever it is you're trying to appear to be. It actually adds a lot to the political infrastructure of the Centauri as well, and again, without wishing to spoil, we will see more of that in the future. Um, I am reminded, as weird as this sounds, because I keep seeing similarities between Primus, my, my setting uh, for the D&D campaign, and Babylon 5, and I swear to God these weren't deliberate, you know, me parroting uh, Babylon 5, but there's a lot of similarities between the way the Burun culture works compared to the Centauri culture. Uh, for anybody who's seen Babylon 5 and knows about Primus, yeah, there you go. Anyways, um, Trachus is an interesting character because he's practically a non-character. He, he's a relevant, in fact, a mandatory aspect of this. He had to be the one to be the slave master, to be the bad guy, to push her into doing what she would have otherwise never done on her own because she had genuine affection back for Londo, and, well, she should. Actually, I'm going to take that statement back. It is entirely possible she did not have genuine affection for Londo. It is actually within the realm of feasibility that she was experiencing puppy love because here's this 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 worldly, knowledgeable man who lavishes her with, with affection and love, and of course she's going to like that, and of course it's going to be better than anything she's experienced before because she's a freaking slave. Illegal slave under the customs of Centauri law, which is another insight into Centauri mindset, by the way. You play the game... Or you get booted out in the worst way possible. If you do not assist in the back-dealing, backstabbing, underhanded, smiling to the through the and lying through the teeth and smiling to someone's face while plotting their demise, if you don't continue to play that game, I'm reminded of Dragon Age Origins here a little bit actually with the uh, the French people. I can't think of their name. Um, if you don't play the game, you end up like her literal property, legal property. And I keep stressing that word because in most cultures, even in fiction, slavery is this horrible, disgusting practice that is not legal, it is not allowed. If it is discovered, those slaves are freed. And the Centauri, the Centauri sell them off. It is ratified. There are laws regarding slavery, and it's disgusting. And, uh, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. Um... I like, uh, once again, I find it interesting that Veer takes the responsibility of being the ambassador for the Centauri very seriously, and he's very enthused about it. I find this amusing for two reasons. One, this is probably the beginnings of Veer's actual character arc. I don't feel like it's spoiling to say that Veer will be a recurring character who has his own arcs in the future, so keep an eye out for him. Um... But I feel like this is the beginning of him actually getting a character arc rather than just being another ensign or background character. Uh, so that's good. Second of all, I like the... Uh, I, I'm reminded of that, that theory I postulated that he actually took his post seriously, that he considered it an honor. This kind of helps ratify that thought. But the final reason I find it amusing is because uh, the Narn uh, assistant, whose name I didn't even write down... Uh, has the exact same reaction. You are now in charge of representing the Narn. She's like, oh, yes, yes, I will represent the Narn. I will do the best. And he even says, just don't give away the whole world. <laughs> I, I love that. So I have to be honest with you. Uh, the final confrontation, I don't have much to talk about. It's a nice way that things laid up. Uh, I like the fact that Londo was frankly honest with Sinclair, that he just drops pretenses. He just says, look, this needs to happen. This has to happen for this reason, yada, yada, yada. 
please, God, help me with this, please. And he's just, just bluntly honest about it, not just for the, for the Centauri, for himself and for her. And I like that. It's a, it's a very nice touch. Uh, furthermore, I really enjoy it how uh, Sinclair manages to wiggle his way in and how they manage to deduce the situation. Um, I don't really have much else to say about that, sorry. But I do have something to say about this. There's one scene in this episode that actually made me cry. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Uh, it's the scene with Ivanova and her father and the end of her father for all intents and purposes. Um, it's interesting because throughout the episode, and again, Bab 5 likes to do this a lot, there's this subplot, and you're just looking at the subplot like, well, why is it there? It has nothing to do with everything else that's going on. It didn't really weave together like Bab 5 usually does, but it, it kind of did thematically, if not literally. The subplot of Ivanova basically stealing access in order to talk to her dying father. Uh, I know he's not actually dying, but you get my point. Um, while Garibaldi is trying to figure out who's using this access, doesn't seem like it's connected to the main plot, and it isn't. It is connected to the main theme. The idea of masks, the idea of how we present ourselves, the idea of just being bluntly honest with each other, the idea of actually caring about someone enough to do something incredibly stupid and risky to do it, which both Londo and Adira did, more than once, I might add. It does weave in nicely, just in, in a less literal way. And of course, it was heartrending to see that, and we see our first peek into Ivanova's character here as well. I mean, we've kind of seen peeks before, you know, her, her discussion with uh, Talia Winters was a good example of that. But here, here we really see just how the character, Susan Ivanova, kind of started to be, and we'll continue to see that in the future. Um, I also really, really like Garibaldi's conclusion on the matter. Because Garibaldi is very much a by-the-books kind of a detective. We've talked about this before. He's, you know, the law is the law, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth kind of a guy, right? Even he, though, is a very human person. He ultimately, underneath all that, he, he reminds me a lot of Cisco, actually, or perhaps vice versa. Cisco reminds me a lot of him. Because despite you know, willing to ride the rules, despite caring about what he believes to be correct and orderable, there's a degree of ethics underneath all of that, his own moral compass. And he's pretty much unwilling to waver from that moral compass. If he believes that A is right... Even if it goes against the rules, he is willing to follow A. And I think that's one of the reasons why Garibaldi presents himself to her at the end. Because he's just too much of a straight-line guy to walk up and say, I totally caught you. Instead, he has to present it himself while wearing the mask of, no, it was just this, and blah, 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 and it was just a thing, and can I buy you a drink? Like, there's nothing, it's just this, you can almost hear, all. if you just take all of his speech, you can almost hear the words, I'm sorry throughout the whole thing. Like, he doesn't know how to present it. And I like that. It was very human. Um, I, uh, I've only got one spoiler this week. So I gotta, I gotta get, get ready here. You, you guys ready? ready? Spoiler! Okay. It's a really quick spoiler. Because I only got the one note. It's really sort of messed up in hindsight the scene where Londa walks up and says, Thanks, Jakar, you just helped save my career and the entire Republic's face. Ah, way to go, buddy. Because it's portrayed as if, again, Jakar's the bad guy, which a lot of early season one does. It portrays it as if the Narn and the Jakar are the villains, which is which is brilliant. Um, and, well, I don't even need to explain to you why that's so messed up, is it? Thanks for helping contribute to the... Horrible devastation and enslavement that will happen to your people, including you personally being tortured by the Emperor himself. Thanks, buddy. 
I know, I know. Chaos effect, butterfly wings, dominoes, etc. It's still a little weird in hindsight. Anyways, that's it for this week. Time to move on to the next episode.